Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, my Bible's already open to Ephesians 5. I hope you'll join me there. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning as we are studying verse by verse through this great uh, book of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. We come today to verse 22, and Lord willing, we'll study this morning through the end of the chapter, verse uh, verse 33. title of the message is The Mystery of Marriage. And when we think about marriage, sometimes we, we view it as a mystery. It's hard to understand how to do it the right way. But that's not really what uh, the title means this morning. You may know that in the New Testament, the Greek word mysterion, which we often translate as mystery, does not mean a whodunit, does not mean something we can't figure out. It's just the opposite. It's something that was hidden in time past, but that God in His sovereignty has chosen to reveal in the present time. And that is true of the concept of marriage here in chapter 5. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is revealing that marriage is to be a picture of Christ's love for his church. And through that, he explains to us how to have marriages that bring honor and glory to God. You know that this section of scripture that I'm about to read is set in the context of the Christian walk. Paul says the Christian walk is our ordered set of behavior, the way we live over a long period of time, the decisions we make, how we behave, how we talk, And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Christians who are born again, which is the only kind of Christian, are those who have a worthy walk. That is, the way we live is commiserate, is congruous with who we are. Well, who are we? Well, we're joint heirs with Jesus. We are those who have been saved by grace. We're children of the Most High God. Later on in verse 17, he says, we're to have a pure walk. Remember, we're to lay aside the filthy garments of sin and immorality and greed, and we're to put on practical righteousness every day. Chapter 5 verse 2 says we're to have a loving walk. That is the attitude that is overarching everything we do in in the church and all of our relationships is motivated by love. And then in verse 15 we saw a couple weeks ago we're to have a wise walk. Wisdom remember is the ability to discern and to judge those things which are right and accurate and valuable. And so our decisions are to be marked by wisdom. But we come to our text this morning where it shifts gears, the scripture does, and it moves from personal behavior now to interpersonal relationships. And for the rest of the book of Ephesians, he talks about our relationships. And so we come down to verse 22. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, So also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, this new way of living, our walk, begins at the moment of salvation, when we're regenerated, when we are born again, when we are justified. And it impacts every area of our life, as I said. It begins with our attitude. Our attitude before we are saved is marked by selfishness and pride. But the walk that is Christ-like is marked by humility. And that attitude then is transferred to our behavior, and not only our behavior, but even the way we speak to one another, and then ultimately to all of our relationships. Now, we saw last Sunday that the concept that defines the Christian relationship is two, word, two, two words, mutual submission, mutual submission. Remember the Greek word is hupo, under, tazo, rank. And so the Christian voluntarily ranks himself or herself under every other Christian. That is, we forego our own rights as we have seen the Lord be a model of this himself. Of course, Philippians chapter two. And we saw that it began in eternity past, right? Paul says that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, did not hold his place in glory tightly, but he emptied himself, he poured himself out so that he could be born at the incarnation and that he would live a perfect life and die in our place on the cross. And it was manifest through that life that was lived, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. And it was affirmed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of Jesus' arrest, when in his humanity he prayed to the Father and said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. And it was completed at the cross when Jesus had accomplished everything he came to accomplish, when the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of the Son, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Now today we're going to talk about relationships. And when we talk about relationships, I think it is appropriate to begin with the primary relationship and that of marriage. Because our first relationships are familial, right? We are born into a family. We have brothers and sisters, mom and dad, cousins, aunts and uncles. But it begins when two people, a man and a woman, come together in marriage. Now you know that marriage as an institution and even as a concept has come under attack. It has really gone through the ringer in the last five or ten years in this country. It has been put down, it has been maligned, minimized, set aside. In fact, our own Supreme Court has redefined it altogether in our Constitution. But I'm glad that there is a higher court than the Supreme Court, and that is God. And I'm glad there's a higher document than the Constitution of the United States, and that is the Holy Bible. And so this morning we're going to see what the Bible has to say about marriage. On your outline, the point that's number one is the origin of marriage. And I aim to answer the question for you, whose idea is marriage? So I was studying this week, I wanted to see what secular scientists said about the concept of marriage. People that had no adherence to the Bible, many of whom even denies there is a God. And in every document I read, the first paragraph about marriage said something like this. Marriage as a concept is a cultural universal. Meaning even the social scientist would say that there's not a culture that's ever existed on planet Earth that did not have the concept of marriage. Marriage. 
That ought to tell them something right there, right? That it's not the result of evolution that we came to have the institution of marriage. It is the plan of God. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 reveals that plan. By the way, the book of Genesis answers a lot of the great questions that people go to college for 10 years to try to answer. All they'd have to do is read Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we, we find the origin of marriage. Here's what it says, Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to the wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here is God originating, creating, developing the institution of marriage. In fact, he comments on his own work and says, For this reason a man shall leave his family and a woman her home, and they will cleave together, and the two will become one. That is, in holy matrimony. The Bible teaches that marriage is a gift from God to humanity. Peter in his epistle, 1 Peter says this, marriage he says is the grace of life. Grace is a gift and so it's a gift to all humanity. Paul understands this of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit here in Ephesians 5 and he quotes Genesis chapter 2 in verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father. That may sound familiar because no less authority than the Lord Jesus also quoted this verse in Matthew chapter 19 verse 15 when he was speaking to the Pharisees about marriage. He quotes the same verse that Paul did. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So if you say, Sanders, why do you believe God created marriage? Why was it his God's idea? One, Moses wrote it down in the Pentateuch, Genesis chapter 2. Jesus affirmed it in the Gospels, and Paul celebrates it in his epistles. That's all the proof we need, right? God says he designed marriage. Now, if that's the case, and it is, that God created and designed marriage, it stands to reason that God has the authority to put parameters and boundaries about that which he's created. He does that in nature, doesn't he? We call them laws of physics. He does it in marriage. And we see that he defines marriage between one man and one woman. Male and female, he said he created them. Not only did he define who were to be married together, he described how that marriage is to operate. And that begins with fidelity. Love singing that song, Great is the Faithfulness of God. It reminds us of our injunction to be faithful in our marriage. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Faithfulness in marriage and abstinence in singleness is God's plan. For how long? Till death part us. Matthew 19, 6, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God is the only one who has the right to take and give life. 
Therefore, God is the only one who has the right to separate marriage. And so we believe that marriage is till death. Well, that is the origin of marriage. You already knew that. How does that apply to our text? Well, let's go to our text now. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And now we see the order of marriage. The order of marriage. You know that God is a God of order. Look at the things that he's created, the systems of the human body. God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. That is true in all of his institutions. God instituted government, didn't he? Government was his idea. Why did he do it? Because without it, man would be a mess. Man is a sinner. He needs a speed limit. He needs governors. He needs law. Because without it, this world couldn't be lived in. Well, he creates order in government. It stands to reason he creates order in his church. The church is God's institution too, isn't it? And people say, well, in the church, everybody's the same. Well, they are in the sense that they have equal worth. But Paul says in the same book of Ephesians that he gave pastors and teachers, that is overseers, those who were to lead out in the church, right? You have to have order. And then he says he's given order in the marriage. And here's how it goes. Verse 22, he says, wives, your role is to be subject to your own husband. Remember that word, hupotazo. In fact, verse 22 is simply a continuation of verse 21. Verse 21, he says, all Christians are to submit to one another. And then in the first example of that is, for example, wives to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now there is a lot of consternation, a lot of nervous fidgeting when the pastor starts talking about wives submitting to husbands. Because we know that's not a popular concept in the culture, right? You say, Pastor, isn't that out of date? Isn't it antiquated? And isn't this uh, something that's only for the ancient world? No. This is God's Word, which is unchanging and eternal. But before we describe what submission is, let's describe what it is not. Submission does not mean that women are inferior in any way. Just as you are not necessarily inferior to the President of the United States. Or, or no one in the church is inferior to the pastor morally or in any other way. And so the wife is not inferior to the husband intellectually or in any capacity as it relates to her person. And so um, this idea that Christianity is against women is, is nonsense. So you hear it all the time. Jesus did more to elevate the, stat, the, the, the status of women than anybody before him. Just by speaking to that woman at the well, he broke all sorts of cultural taboos. Men just didn't speak to women, especially strange women, in public. But Jesus did, and he gave her living water, and she was saved. Some of the strongest disciples of Jesus were women. In fact, when the men fled and hid when Jesus was being crucified, the women stayed there. Jesus gave to his dear mother Mary John and said, this is now your son and this is now your mother. Jesus loved and respected women, including his mother. So it certainly does not mean women are inferior. And it certainly does not mean that women are not to have input in the marriage. The, the idea that a, the woman is to be seen and not heard is, is antithetical to the scripture. Any husband will want to hear the godly counsel of his wife. Here's what it does mean. It means that God has established rules and order, and in his order in marriage, the husband has the primary responsibility before God to lead in the home. 
And the wife's primary role is to love and support and help her in her, her husband as he seeks after the Lord's will. So he says, wives, hupotazo, voluntarily rank yourself under the authority of your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. In the church, Christ is the head and we are the hands and the feet. So that leads us to verse 25, the role of the husbands. And so he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, when you think about a husband's role of loving his wife as Christ loved the church, we have to think about how Christ loves the church. For one, it's an agape kind of love, right? It's not based upon how good we are. If it were, we would not be loved. Agape love is loving us because we choose to love another person. He chooses to love us, not because of any goodness within us. And so I hear husbands say sometimes, well, I don't love my wife anymore. Well, start, because love is a choice. You choose to love that which you're commanded to. And so he says to husbands, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And when I think about the love that Christ has for his church, I think about that love between a shepherd and sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples that I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd knows his sheep, right? And he lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23rd is a beautiful picture of the Father's love for us. And he says that he makes us to lie down in green pastures and he leads us beside quiet waters. I think there's a note for husbands here. One of your functions as a husband, men, is to provide for your family your wife, your children, to make sure they're well fed. And I believe that means that. It's the husband's role to be the primary breadwinner in the home, to be the one who, who takes care of God's economic strategy. You know, God's economic strategy, it's not hard. He gives us health and he gives us a mind so that we can work hard to make money so that we can provide for our own needs and that of our family and for those who are less fortunate. That's it. And so the husband takes the lead here. But the husband is also to protect Jesus warned and protected his disciples against all of those who would seek to do them harm. Now, I know what you're thinking, men. You're thinking about someone breaking into your house. Would you step in front of your wife and take a bullet? I know all of you would. But that's not exactly what he's talking about here. That's part of it. He's talking about protecting her against anything that is not in her best interest, that is not helping her in the path of sanctification. In fact, look what he says in verse 26, speaking of Christ's love for the church, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Not only do you have responsibility before God, men, of nurturing your wife physically and making sure that she's well clothed and fed and a good place to live, even more important than that, your role is to help her grow spiritually. That's what sanctification is. It's the process by which every Christian grows into the image of Christ. And so if you're leading her to do things and see things and participate in things that are contrary to her sanctification, you're not being the husband that God calls you to be. And so you have roles for provision, for protection, both spiritually and physically. And, and then he speaks of nurturing her. 
nurturing her. He says, verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. You say, wait a second, Pastor. Um, that proves the Bible's not inerrant because I know someone that doesn't like themselves very much. In fact, they hurt themselves. In fact, they, they've attempted suicide. Well, that's not what he's speaking of here. He's talking about basic human nature. When he says, no man has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, it means your basic instinct in life. So men, when you woke up this morning and you felt a little bit hungry, what did you do for yourself? You ate breakfast, right? You, you got yourself something to eat. And uh, after you ate breakfast, you walked in the bathroom and looked in the mirror and you had crumbs all over your t-shirt and your hair was a mess and you knew you were going to church and you wanted you to look good. So what did you do for you? Well, you bathed and you put on clean clothes and you brushed your teeth and you went out and, and put the best you forward that you could do. He's saying, we do that every day without thinking about it, right? We make sure that our needs are met. He's saying when you get married, the two become one. You are to have that same concern for your wife as you have for yourself. And there is nothing more unnatural than loving another person as much as you love yourself. And that's why I think marriage is so great for sanctification. Nothing has helped my sanctification more than getting married. And I tell this to young people all the time. They say, do you think I ought to get married? I said, yes. And here's why. Nothing will expose selfishness in a person's life quicker than getting married. Unless it's having children. <laughs> and by getting married and having children, the Lord oftentimes will shine a million candle bulb in our life and say, you know, you thought you were doing pretty well. The truth is you're prideful, you're selfish, you put yourself first. And then he graciously helps us to confess those sins. He forgives us and, and he's constantly in that process of, of growing us and he uses marriage to do that. So that, that is the order of marriage. God is a God of order. But that, that was not our primary question today and we're running out of time rapidly. So let's get to point number three, which is the mystery of marriage. What is the object of marriage? God obviously instituted it. The question is, why? Well, you say, well, he wants to have companionship. That's part of it. He said it's not good for man to be alone. He, he wanted to give us the ability to procreate, to have children in a way that could be pleasing to him, and that's true. But that's still not the primary reason that, that God gives us marriage. So let, let's ask it this way. You know the answer to this. What is the purpose for anything we do as Christians? To glorify God, right? Marriage being one of those things. Every Christian marriage is to glorify God. The scripture says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord and not unto the, to men. Specifically, Christian marriage, really all marriage, but specifically Christian marriage, is to picture Christ's love for the church, right? Christ's love for the church. It's a selfless kind of love. It's a sacrificing kind of love. It's a love that purifies and sanctifies the object of love. And it is a love that is unbreakable and ultimately eternal. Now I say that God gives us pictures. He's gracious because we men, we need pictures sometimes, right? Have you ever been talking to your wife and she's explaining to you how she feels about something and she looks at you and says, do you need me to draw you a picture? 
Yes, honey, I, I do. Please draw me a picture. Well, God knows that about us, and he graciously gives us through the scripture a picture of what he's trying to communicate. He does that, of course, through marriage, but he also does that through prophecy. We, we've been studying on Wednesday nights in this room through the book of Genesis. And this past Wednesday night, we came to Genesis chapter 24, probably the most beautiful love story in the Bible. The story of Isaac and Rebekah and how they met and fell in love and, and got married. You, you remember the story. God had promised to Isaac's father, Abraham, that he was going to make of him a great nation, that through him all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. And he was going to have descendants more numerous than the stars in heaven and the sand upon the seashore. And so Abraham rejoiced when Isaac was born. God had kept his promise and Isaac grew up and he got to be 20 and still not married. Got to be 30, still not married. Got to be 40 and his mother died and he still wasn't married. And Abraham got to be a little nervous. And he called in his servant, a guy by the name of Eleazar of Damascus, his closest advisor. And he said, Eleazar, I need you to make a promise to me. I'm getting old. You got to find a wife for that boy. <laughs> and I've seen the women around here. Promise me you won't take a wife for him from these girls. Go back to where I'm from, to the land of Haran, and, and find him a wife from my people. And he says, what if she won't come with me? He says, well, you're released from the covenant if she won't. But promise me this, you won't take him out of the promised land. Abraham remembered when he disobeyed God and went off down into Egypt. And he didn't want that for, for his boy. And so Eleazar got together, a herd of camels, 10 of them, the Bible says. And he went that 500 miles across the desert till he came to the city of Haran, where Abraham's relatives live. And he was nervous. How will I know which of these girls is the right one? And he began to pray, by the way, which is a good idea. And the Bible says before he finished talking to God, this girl walked up. And she was beautiful. And what he had prayed is that let it be the girl who says, let me get you a drink and also water your camels. He wanted to see her character, that she was hardworking and a servant. And so sure enough, he said, young lady, can I have a drink of water? And she says, not only will I give you a drink of water, I'll water your camels. <laughs> well, Wikipedia tells us that a camel can drink 20 gallons. So that was no small task. For probably a couple hours, she hauled water and and at the end of that, he, he put a gold bracelet around her wrist and said, who's your daddy? And she told him, and guess who it was? It was one of Abraham's kinfolk. And he knew the prayer had been answered. And he went home with her. And he began to tell her how God had blessed Abraham. And he really began to pour it on about how great Isaac was. And then he says, I'm here to take your daughter with me to be his wife. And they couldn't help but believe this was of God. And they says, well, let her do it. Her mom says, give us 10 days to get ready. He says, no, don't delay me. Right now. The next morning they got up and she got on top of one of those camels and went to 500 miles back with him. And when they were just outside of the camp, Scripture says Isaac came out in the evening to meditate and pray. Man of God. And she said to Eleazar, who's that good looking fellow? By the way, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. <laughs> and he said, that, that's my master. That's Isaac, the one I've been telling you about for 500 miles. 
Scripture says that uh, she put her veil on, she got down, and he married her and took her to his mother's tent, and they loved one another. We say, well, how is that a picture of the gospel? Just this. God's eternal plan of redemption is that in time, eternity past, before any of us were ever born, God determined to get a bride for his son. And it was determined at just the right moment in human history, the second person of the Trinity would intervene into time and space and he would take on the form of a man and of a servant, that he would live a perfect life, that he would die on the cross for the sins of his bride and that he would ascend back into heaven and at just the right time, the father would say, it's time to go get your bride and that he would descend and, and take his bride and then they would be together forevermore. You see, uh, Abraham there represents God the Father and he sends the Holy Spirit, the servant into the world to seek out a bride for his son and he wooed those who would be the bride and told them of his greatness and of his love and she loved the son even though she had never seen him with her own eyes. The scripture says we love him even though we've never seen him, right? And we are on a journey, Peter says, we are sojourners. We're traveling through this life and one day we're going to be united with the bridegroom. The scripture says in Revelation that there's going to be a celebration. What the scripture calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where the church from all epochs of history and all time, from every people group on planet earth is going to be gathered together and Remember how Psalm 23 ends? And there we will be with the Lord, how long? Forevermore. Men, women, marriage is a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church. And when our marriages are not Christ-like, when wives are not submitting to their husbands and husbands are not loving their wives as Christ loved the church, the earth it's a misunderstanding of Christ's love for his church. And, and so you having a healthy and a Christ-like marriage is not just for your comfort. You having a Christ-like marriage is for the glory of God. And if we will start seeing our marriages that way, I believe the Lord will send a revival to this church and to homes and to marriages. Would you join me in that prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, we are grateful that uh, you draw us a picture of the kind of relationship that you want with your bride. And, and that is through our own marriages. And Lord, as I think about my own marriage, I am uh, cognizant of my own shortcomings. So Lord, uh, forgive us to the degree that we're not being all you want us to be in our marriages. Father, I pray you'd give us uh, the boldness to confess sins today to one another. Father, I pray that uh, every marriage represented at First Baptist Church of Keller would be everything you desire it to be. Not so that we can get along better, but so that a lost and dying world can clearly see the gospel through our marriages. Father, if there's a person here today that uh, married or unmarried who does not know you in the free pardon of sin, Lord, I pray your spirit would convict that heart of a need of a savior. Would you draw them and woo them to Christ today? Give them a love for the savior, even though they've never seen him. Lord, I pray you do these things for your own namesake, for your own glory. And we pray it through Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.
thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.